So last week, we talked about and we learned that Christ-centeredness is simply a response to the reality of who Jesus is. Christ-centeredness is a reality of Jesus' position. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He was Uh, He created everything, whether it is seen or unseen. He created it all. And on top of that, he holds it all together. He's the head of the church. And as a result of that, Jesus is preeminent. The Greek word is proteo. In other words, it means that he is first in rank and he is taking precedence over all things. No matter what it is, Jesus is taking first in rank. In other words, he's Lord. He's the king. He's sovereign. We don't need to make him those things. And he doesn't need our permission. He doesn't need our vote. He doesn't need our affirmation. He doesn't even need your approval. He's the core. And the Colossians' call is to live with him at the very center. The challenge of our lives is to figure out how to live with a conscious awareness of who Jesus is. That's the call of our lives. How do we live in such a way that we live out the reality that Jesus Christ is the center? How do we live into that? So hopefully, the memorizing even of these core verses will help you focus on that reality that Jesus Christ is the core. But we need to find many, many, many other creative ways to remind our hearts and our minds of the fact that Jesus is the core. So I know that this week there was a number of people who have posted and texted me uh, the fact that they have memorized that first core verse. Just a quick show of hands for extra Jesus points. How many people has done? Oh, we've got a few. Yeah, a few. Look at this side. It's a little lopsided. Jim, way to go. Look at this. Okay, so a volunteer who is willing to just do the ninth, chapter 1, 19, and 20. Go. Who? Aaron, go. And next week, she will have the entire thing memorized. (laughs) If we can memorize movies and song lyrics and just dumb movie quotes, some of you can memorize almost all of Princess Bride for some reason. Inconceivable. Inconceivable, yet it happens, you know. If we can do that and lodge it into our hearts, it will help us to remember that Jesus Christ is actually the core. He's the center of it all. So anyway, I cannot overemphasize how important the centrality or the preeminence of Jesus Christ is for our lives. I can't overemphasize that. And I cannot overemphasize to you how dangerous it is for us to live in a manner where we put our lives at the center, at the core. So it's critical that we are constantly trying to remember, remind ourselves, and we use each other to remind ourselves, hey, is, really the Jesus, is Jesus really the center of your thinking or the center of your emotion? Is he driving your passion? What is driving you right now? 
And so as we look today, we are going to see that Paul has a similar concern. His, his concern in the book of Colossians for a group of people who were being tempted to deny in practice the authority of Jesus Christ in their lives. So our aim this morning is trying to determine the what and the, the how this practical denial of Christ was surfacing in this early church and then to use their problems as a mirror for our own lives. We are going to be able to see in, a, in this early church in Colossae our lives. That's how scripture works. It's not just this historical book that we read and go, oh, I, I know that story. Oh, I know the, those are really warm, fuzzy verses. No, we look in and we see ourselves as God ministers to us. But before we do this, I want us to kind of understand the background. So we, we start off with chapter 1, and, and we're looking at verses 1 and 2. But we're going to be looking at kind of what is the backbone, what is all going on, the themes and the players in the setting all in this book of Colossae, because it will, Colossians, because it will help us understand even more. So we're going to start off by the core players. Who are the people that were identified? It starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, with Paul identifying himself as the author of this book. He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And this title was very, very important because Paul had formerly been Christianity's primary and top known persecutor throughout the region. But he later had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. But he had to kind of give his credentials. He, he, he was a Jew by birth. He studied, studied under the great teacher Gamaliel. He had risen to the top of the whole group of Pharisees. He was kind of the chief guy. He was passionate. He was zealous for Judaism. And he was authorized, given a letter to go out from Jerusalem with this letter and chase after Christians who have fled Jerusalem to go to Damascus, and he was seething murderous threats to kill these people. And it was on this road to Damascus where Jesus met him face to face. He had a vision of Jesus Christ where Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that event moved Paul from being the most significant threat to Christianity, to being a believer in Jesus Christ, to being Christianity's most profound spokesman. More than any other person, Paul was responsible for the spread of Christianity throughout the entire Roman Empire with three major missionary journeys. Paul is also the primary author of our New Testament. You see him, of the 26 books in the New Testament, Paul has written 13. So he was well-known, well-versed. But Paul, by the end of his missionary journeys, he was arrested and he was sent to Rome. And he knew, Paul knew, his demise was sure. He was going to be executed for the gospel. And it was from this imprisonment that he wrote, the prison epistles, where he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. His last plea out to these churches that he was instrumental in planning 
And it's likely that Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were all sent by the hand of a man named Tychius. So you got Paul, you got Tychius, who, who is the messenger, who is bringing these, these messages to these churches. So this congregation at Colossae was likely started because of Paul's extensive ministry in the city of Ephesus. However, the work at Colossae was an area that Paul never personally visited. Paul has never been to Colossae. He's never visited there. He was not the church planter. He was not starting it. He did not even go to the city at all, to our knowledge. We find even in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, that Paul says that he has a great struggle for those at Laodicea and those who have not seen me face to face. So the church probably started its, uh, owed its start to the chief disciple of Paul, whose name was Epaphras. And that's a name that we're going to hear again. And so Epaphras came to Paul. He was arrested and became a fellow prisoner. You see that in Philemon chapter 20. Philemon chapter 23. Philemon 23, because there's only one chapter. And in Colossians chapter 1 verse 7, it tells of Epaphras' role with Paul in the church. As you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul probably used Ephesus as his evangelistic headquarters, his sending spot. And the men like Epaphras were sent out to the area churches in this area called Asia in modern-day Turkey. In fact, you may know of the seven churches of the, and found in the first chapter of Revelation. Those were probably started because of Ephesus as the sending headquarters of the gospel going out. Most of these churches were probably planted through this Ephesian outpost. But a second major player that we also see mentioned here is Timothy. It's interesting to note that Paul identifies him in the salutation because he is not the only one with Paul at the time of his writing. In fact, he has eight other men with him in prison. You can see that in Colossians 4, 7 through 15. However, Timothy had a unique role in Paul's ministry as he had a more permanent role. He was Paul's closest and most cherished partner in ministry. So you have Paul, Timothy, Tychicus, and Epaphras, who were all part of this extended ministry to this church. And each of them played a role in the spiritual shepherding of the people in Colossae. So those, those are four of the major players for the church in Colossae. But we need to understand something about its setting. Most ancient letters start with three elements. They start off with the name of the writer, the name of the people receiving the letter, and finally a greeting. So you see that here. We've already learned about the first part, Paul and Timothy. The people receiving the letter are called what? Saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And this is a classic, and you also have this classic greeting of Paul. Grace to you and peace. 
Grace to you and peace. So the believers were called saints, which means they were holy because of what God has been working and doing in them. These are saints. And the reality of you, for us even this morning is some of you don't want that title because you look at your life and go, man, I, I really suck in this area. You really want to call me a saint. But if you are in Christ Jesus, the reality is, is that you are a saint. No halos. But you are a saint because of God's work done in you. So on top of that, not only is it, were they called saints, they were called faithful brothers because up to the date, they were being consistent in their allegiance to Christ. But the city of Colossae was located in what's called the Lycus Valley in this area called Fergia. It was located near the city of Laodicea, and, and Paul gave some very clear instructions, even in Colossians chapter 4, for the letter to the people of Colossae to also be read to the church in Laodicea. So this letter written to this church in Colossae also applied to the people not too far away from them, the people in Laodicea. So read it at, at your church. But I also want you to take this very letter and read it in the church of Laodicea. The city was just south of the main road that led to Ephesus, which led to the Euphrates River. And Colossae was not a large city like many other in the region. In fact, it was the least influential of all the churches that Paul wrote to. The least influential. Its greatest, flame, uh, greatest claim to fame was the trade of wool. The Lycus Valley was known for its very rich valley, great grass, great feeding land. So the sheep were amazing, and they produced black and red wool. And so they were known just for that, just wool. But Colossae was, was also, like most other cities in Asia Minor, it was a cosmopolitan city consisting of people from all across the world, all converging in kind of these different spots. Jews had resettled there um, from their Babylonian captivity in the second century BC. Acts 2 tells us that there were people from this region of Asia, Asia Minor in Jerusalem when Peter preached his Pentecostal sermon. There were people from this area. The city contained a strong Jewish contingent, and it, but it also contained a significant diversity of culture. But it appears that this church of Colossae was primary a gathering of Gentile converts. The city of Colossae was not the most strategic city, nor was it the most influential city, the church had been birthed out of Paul's uh, apostle ministry in Ephesus, and now he had heard this report. He heard this report from Epaphras. Epaphras left, and if you look at the map, he took quite a journey to get all the way to Rome. As a crow flies, it's a thousand miles. But there were no crows for him to ride on, no airplanes for him to travel on. So he had to go on foot and by boat to get from Colossae to Rome. And it was an urgent message that had to be shared with Paul. And Paul was now addressing these problems that Epaphras was bringing to him. The problem 
the problems that were related that Paul that Epaphras was sharing was were known as the Colossian heresy. It was a multifaceted belief that was a threat to the gospel and a threat to their spiritual lives. Every letter in the, the New Testament has a reason for which it was it was written. There was a problem being addressed, encouragement needed to be had, commands needed to be given. Colossians was written out of Paul's concern that they were being taken captive by some teaching that was not compatible with the gospel they had received. Paul warns him in chapter 2, verse 8, he warns him this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. What exactly was the teaching against Paul, which Paul was fighting? He never really identifies it. He never really identifies it, but we do pick up some clues throughout this entire book. Listen to this in 2 verse 8. It was kind of a heretical teaching that was presented as a philosophy of life, even, even higher knowledge based upon ancient tradition, and it claimed to be a revelation from God. If we kind of get in 2 verse 16, that there was an emphasis of a specific kind of lifestyle standard that was regarding even foods and what should be eaten and what should not be eaten and what holy days should be observed and what holy days should not be observed. So there was a, a lifestyle kind of thing going on. Even under it, in, in chapter 2, verse 18, it focused on humility and the worship of angels. It also created this subtle elitism, which were, at its core was full of pride. And the teaching appeared to be wise, intellectual, and disciplined. The problem with the things I mentioned is that many of these things in the right context are actually good things, right? Philosophy is not bad, nor is learning from history or tradition. Those things aren't bad. Who can argue about humility being a bad practice, right? If anything, our American culture could use a good dose of humility, or who could say that living a disciplined life by, lifestyle is something that should be shunned? But somewhere in your mind and in my mind, you need to mark it down that this is always the problem with false teaching. It is rarely completely false. That's the problem with false teaching, is that it is rarely completely false. However, it is false enough in certain key ways that it, comp uh, that it compromises the integrity of the gospel. It's wrong enough. My definition of maturity is this. Maturity is not what you know. It is knowing what is important. There are plenty of people that you know who, who know a lot of information, who can recite Bible stuff left and right. They know plenty about the creeds. They know about, a lot about church history. They know a lot about this. They know a lot about that. But in reality, if you look at them, you go, you are really immature. All you've got is stuff up here. 
But true Christian maturity is not just having lots of knowledge. It is knowing what is really important. And this is critical for our study in Colossians. The Colossian heresy was this strange blend of Judaism, of Christianity, and Gnosticism, Gnostic philosophy. It, it was probably presented to the church as, as an improvement or even an advancement of the gospel that was taught to them by Epaphras. It's like, oh, take what Epaphras gave to us, but let's go one or two steps more and add to it. And oh, it will be the best thing for your life. This is what God wants for you now. It sought to merge Christianity with its roots, and it sought to merge also in their Greek philosophy. In practice, it produced a religion that looked and sounded a lot like Christianity. But its focus was more and more on discipline and rules and spiritual experiences. Do we hear any of that today? In our culture, the problem at Colossae was different than the, the Judaizers in Galatia in that it was far more personal, far more spiritual, and it was far more mystical. It was kind of getting sexy. Whew. You need this. You need to have these additions to your life. And oh, you will shine like the stars in the heaven. And there is one thing that is crystal clear. The focus on Christ shifted. Ever so subtly, the focus on Christ shifted. It wasn't that they stopped believing in Christ. It wasn't that they flatly denied Christ. The Colossian heresy was an outgrowth of what happened when Christ is no longer the center. Christ plus this. Christ plus this. The heresy detracted from the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. It, it ultimately treated Christ with contempt, thinking that spiritual experiences or regulations could somehow improve on Christ. The similar equation, Christ in you, the hope of glory, would have looked to these, these people as silly or juvenile. Really? That's all it is? Christ in you, the hope of glory? Come on, there's got to be more to this equation. How about Christ in you? Yeah, I can buy into that. How about Christ in you plus children's programs? How about Christ in you and an amazing slick preacher? How about Christ in you and this, and Christ in you and this, and Christ in you and this? It can't be just Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in light of this, hear these verses and see if you can hear the Colossian heresy that Paul addresses. So Paul addresses this silent and deadly heresy by taking the tractor beam of attention off of themselves and putting it back on the greatness and the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 1.27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. You want mystery? <laughs> I'll give you a mystery. 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And take it off of you and what you're doing. Put it back on Christ. You want something mystical? Oh, consider for the rest of your life Christ in you. God made man, the spirit of Christ in you. And that is the hope of ultimate one day glory. And then Paul asked, you really want to grow? If you really want to grow, I'm going to give you an answer that is uber simple and frustratingly simple. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. All you have to do, walk in him. Being rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You don't add all these extra disciplines, all these extra things, worshiping angels. Don't worry about these holy days and asceticism, which is denying yourself all this and that. No, walk in him. That is all you need to do. That's it. It is not anything else. It is just walking in him, being rooted in him, being built up in him. This is how it is done. And then Paul now focuses on their hearts and their minds on Christ. And you may, I don't know if maybe you, you don't run in the same circles as me, but you may have heard that Paul is so heavenly minded that he is of no earthly good. Paul is so heavenly minded, some people say that he is of no earthly good. So what does Paul do? In chapters 3, chapter 3, 1 through 3, he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So get your focus off things here, and get your mind focused on Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God the Father. So at at issue is the theological and the practical centrality of Jesus Christ. Namely, the issue is one of trust. Who are you really trusting and why? Which brings us to why I titled, entitled this sermon, Welcome to Colossae, USA. I use the title because I think there are a number of ways that we might look at our culture and our American version of Christianity through the cautious lens of Colossians. And as it relates to the world in which we live, I think we must be cautious of two things. Here's the first one. A spiritual but a Christless culture. I don't know when the shift exactly happened, but in my mind, it happened about 15, 14, 15 years ago when, with 9-11, suddenly we had an entire culture that had suddenly become, they were looking and searching for something, and it was entitled spiritual. In fact, today, it would be political suicide even for a political candidate to say, I, I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe if he was atheistic, it would almost be uh, political suicide to run. But in, instead, what do our, 
are politicians and people that you rub shoulders. They are very spiritual people, right? But they're often very spiritual people in, in the way that spirituality is in, but religion is out. So in the midst of this spiritual culture, it, it is increasingly difficult to not believe in Jesus, not just believe in Jesus Christ, but to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to be right with God. You, the, the world says, yeah, really? Just Jesus Christ? Man, you're not spiritual enough. All roads lead to God, right? And I believe it. They all lead to God. But I'm going to tell you, on that last day, they're going to meet God as either father or judge. Maybe you've heard of a, a, a man named Deepak Chopra. Uh, here's a summary of his book called Third Jesus. Listen to this summary as it's given online. In the Third Jesus a best-selling author and spiritual leader, spiritual leader, Deepak Chopra provides a challenge to current systems of belief and a fresh perspective on what Jesus can teach us all, regardless of our religious background. This is not one Jesus, Chopra writes, but three. First, there is the historical Jesus, the man who lived more than 2,000 years ago and whose teachings are the foundation of Christian theology and thought. Next, there is Jesus, the Son of God, who came, who had come to embody an institutional religion with specific dogma, a priesthood, and devout believers. That's us. And finally, there is a third Jesus, the cosmic Christ, the spiritual guide whose teaching embraces all humanity, not just the church built in his name. He speaks to the in individual who wants to find God as a personal experience to attain what some might call grace or God consciousness or enlightenment. When we take Jesus literally, we are faced with the impossible. How can we love thy neighbor as thyself? But when we see the exhortations of Jesus as invitations to join him on a higher spiritual plane, his words suddenly make sense. Ultimately, Chopra writes or argues, and listen to this, Christianity needs to overcome its tendency to be exclusionary and refocus on being a religion of personal insight and spiritual growth. Do you hear the church in Colossae? In this way, Jesus can be seen for the universal teacher he truly is. Someone whose teaching of, teachings of compassion, tolerance, and understanding can embrace and be embraced by us all. And that's our culture today, isn't it? Just be spiritual. Be open. Be tolerant to all these things. And you see, in the midst of this spiritual culture, it is increasingly difficult not to just believe in Jesus, but to believe in Jesus as the only way to God. And this is the world we live in right now. We live in a world with increasing openness to spirituality, but a decreasing tolerance to Christ. 
you might find yourself saying something like this. I've no, I've, I know I've felt it in my own heart. I think overall it's pretty easy to tell people that I inter- attend a church, even a Bible study. But actually talking about Christ, that I have a relationship with him, that he has changed my life, is much harder and much less socially acceptable. It's easy to say, oh yeah, I go to church on Sunday. Oh really? Oh, that's great. I go to temple. I go to here. I go to there. But to say that I have a relationship with the one and only who has changed my life and can change yours, man, that's a whole different gig. It seems like the world is more comfortable hearing about how a person has found peace through Buddhism, through prayer to a general God or God, or even just within themselves. Jesus makes people uncomfortable. And maybe that's a good thing. In many ways, our culture looks a lot like Colossae a potentially weird blend of spirituality and Christianity. And we need to be careful not to confuse a culture of spiritual interest with a culture interested in Christ alone. But it's easy to attack the outside culture, isn't it? It's to look at them and just say, man, they are screwed up. But there's a second problem. The second problem is this. Throw it up there. A Christless Christianity. And I'm going to give a lot of credit to a man named uh, Michael Horton. He wrote a phenomenal book called uh, Christless Christianity. Uh, The problem is this, and it's a subtle problem, this Christless Christianity. And this tragedy happens when we take Christianity as as we know it, and over time allow something other than Christ be the center. That, that's a danger for us. It's, how many of you have ever heard of the screw tape letters written by C.S. Lewis? Oh my gosh. It, those of you who have never heard of C.S. Lewis' uh, screw tape letters, it's basically uh, these fictitious letters that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote from Satan, who is Uncle Screwtape, to his a demonic minion or his nephew known as Wormwood. So it's fictitious, totally fictitious. And he's writing this. And, you know, Satan's trying to train his young disciple of how to best destroy the church. And Screwtape suggests that Wormwood should employ a strategy of distraction. Listen to this. Rather than clumsily announce his presence by direct attacks, Wormwood should try to get churches to become interested in Christianity and dot, dot, dot. Christianity on war, Christianity and poverty, Christianity and morality, Christianity and so on and so forth. Now, hear me say, we should not be uh, giving up our, uh, our, our passion for dealing with poverty, dealing with war issues, and all those kind of things. Those are good deals. We should really be concerned about family issues, moral issues, justice issues, political issues, community transformation, and other important applications of the gospel. However, there is a real danger when those things begin to eclipse Jesus Christ. 
when politics tend to eclipse Jesus at the center, when family values tend to eclipse Jesus at the center, when school issues or racial reconciliation or this or that, you name it, begins to eclipse Jesus Christ. You see, there's a a part of the rich young ruler that is in all of us. We, too, can easily elevate a form of Christianity over the reality of Jesus Christ. In other words, we begin to miss the very heart of the gospel, not by denying the gospel or Jesus Christ as Savior, but by adding so many things around the gospel that it isn't our source of trust, our source of hope, and our source of life. The problem is the one of addition, distraction, and emphasis. Michael Horton wrote this. Christless Christianity can be promoted in context where either the sermon is a lecture on timeless doctrine and ethics, or Christ gets lost in all the word studies and applications. Christ gets lost in churches where activity, self-expression, the hype of worship experiences and programs replace the ordinary means, the, the, the ordinary ministry of hearing and receiving Christ as he is given to us in the means of grace. He goes on to say, Christ gets lost when he is promoted as the answer to everything but our condemnation, death, and tyranny of sin, or as the means to the end of, a more, ex- of more excitement, amusement, better living, or a better world. I have a friend, his name is Duke Kwan, who is a PCA pastor out in... Um, the D.C. area, and he shared a, uh, a tweet from a, a pastor named Creflo Dollar, and this is what Creflo Dollar wrote, Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity, hashtag prosperity in Christ, hashtag wealthy living, hashtag abundant life. And my friend Duke said, if you're looking for a clear, succinct summary of what is often called the health and wealth gospel, well, here it is. Bad, destructive, anti-gospel stuff. And yet, he wrote, the more I ponder it, the more I see how much I myself believe in this lie. Or rather, some more acceptable, nuanced version of Jesus died and bled for my financial prosperity. Maybe some of you can identify with this. I may not own a Bentley or an island, but surely he promised me financial freedom and security and middle-class comforts and amenities, right? We kind of buy into that somehow. Yeah, I don't need the Bentley. I don't need the airplane. My man, I think Jesus could at least give me this. Do you see the danger that's going on? Jesus is being eclipsed. By other things. He goes on to write, I may not make bank, but doesn't he owe me enough to purchase away most of life's threats and troubles? Doesn't he want me to be happy? I may not ask for a job with top pay, 
but then at least give me the equivalent in benefits called social respectability. I may not have much, but I feel like I deserve more. I may not lust for gold rivers and streams, but don't you deny me the American dream. And the Duke Kwan ends with, oh, for the grace to die to the Creflo dollar in me. See, that's the problem. Christ is no longer preeminent. And that, as subtle as it is, we may not find ourselves buying into Creflo Dollar's theology of financial prosperity because of the gospel, but we all have eclipsed Jesus in some other way with the American dream and Christianized it. So do you see the problem? Do you see how easily this can all happen? I, even for myself, I find it happening to me. I get so fixed even on ministry forms. I get fixed on church work. I get fixed on Bible studies. I get fixed on this rhythm of ministry that it's possible for me to serve Jesus without trusting Jesus, thinking about Jesus without loving Jesus. Counseling can become a matter for giving people my opinions filled with Bible verses, but absent, absent of focusing on Christ. Exposition can be about original languages and, and grammatical historical method and background material and not about savoring the Savior. Preaching can be all about a clear argument for me and good illustrations at the neglect of bringing people face to face with the risen Christ. It's easy for me to do. Congregational worship, congregational worship can be about my emotional experience. I know none of you have had that. It can be more about my feelings and my musical taste and not about worshiping my king. Evangelism can be about methodologies and butts in the seat and decisions for Christ, but not about introducing people to Christ. Educating my children can be more about having obedient kids who know the content of the Bible, can memorize their catechism, can memorize scripture, but not about connecting each lesson or every day to the gospel. Working on my marriage can be more about wanting to get along with Laura and having peace in the household or my own personal happiness than really loving her like Christ loved the church. My problem is that I'm not denying Christ here, right? My problem is that I have to guard my heart from using Jesus to get what I want. My problem is that I can fall too easily in love with things that are supposed to lead me to him. That is why if you are looking for answers today, If you're looking for any kind of answers today, the best thing I could do is not offer you more programs. I went, the best thing I could do is not, is not send you to a missional community, although they are great. Uh, even sending you to counseling, although that is very important. Those are all means to an end. The best thing I can offer you today 
is offer you a sinless Savior named Jesus Christ who absorbed God's wrath over your sin on the cross. He's the only one who can grant you the one thing you need more than anything else, and that is forgiveness in life. So church, as we navigate these strangely choppy waters of spirituality around us, and as we do church together as a family, as we live out the call of Christ in us, the hope of glory, let us not forget the one very important thing, that Jesus Christ is the core. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are who you say you are. You are the image of the invisible God. You are the firstborn of all creation. All things were created in you and by you and for you. I thank you that you are before all things and that you hold all things together. I thank you that you are the head of this body, the church. I thank you that you are the beginning, that you are the end. You're the firstborn of the end. And because of that, you are to be preeminent. You are to have first rank in all things. Father God, uh, help us. Help us to not fall into these subtle distractions. Let us not get one degree, one vector off of Christ as the center. Keep our eyes focused on Christ. And God, may this body, these brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, help one another to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Help us, Lord. That is our one desire. And if it is not, Lord, would you make it? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.